Philip Lowe onto the Job Seeker Rate Stat edition of Spin Cycle. Yep, yeah, gal is making interest rate gags. Uh, This is the media show that tries to make sense of the chaos that is our 24-hour news cycle, broadcasting from the stolen lands of the Rwandri people of the Kulin Nation, lands for which sovereignty has never been ceded. Tell that to all of them celebrating across uh, the pond. Always was, always will be Aboriginal land. I'm Jess Lilly and I'm flying solo this week as Charlie takes a bit of a vacay. We are like ships in the night at the moment, but I will definitely not be alone uh, because we're going to be chatting to Crikey's Cam Wilson, who is going to talk about a really interesting recent uh, investigative reporting series, I guess, a couple of pieces that he has written uh, looking at Australian journos who are moonlighting as right-wing provocateurs. Uh, or, or maybe they're right-wing provocateurs moonlighting as Australian journalists. Who knows? We shall find out. And in the, as if that's not enough, in the second half of the show, we're going to be chatting to the wonderful Amy Ramikas from Guardian Australia, uh, talking about the absolute dog's breakfast that has been the federal government's approach to raising the rate of job seeker. And uh, you think it couldn't get any worse, but I I have no doubt that it probably will between now and uh, the budget, federal budget. Um, And how have they got something that seems so in their lane, so terribly wrong? All of that and more when we talk to Amy uh, later on in the show. Cam Wilson is Associate Editor of Crikey. He has previously worked as a reporter at the ABC, BuzzFeed, Business Insider and Gizmodo. He primarily covers internet culture and tech in Australia and has penned a couple of cracking investigations recently. The one we're going to discuss tonight is no exception. In a pair of recent reports, Cam reveals the uh, journos who are uh, writing for um, the Daily Mail and The Spectator, but who are also publishing incendiary writing views on social media, Um, not always (laughs) under their own names. Uh, Thanks for joining us this evening, Cam. Hi, good to be here. Uh, it does feel like um, quite extreme talking points are entering the mainstream media and social media from many angles at the moment. So <laughs> it, <laughs> this seems a very necessary investigation. But perhaps this is um, a little uh, less transparent and a bit more insidious. So let's start with the piece that um, you wrote about um, uh, Spectator Australia, which was published on Crikey on April 21, it's always been a staunchly conservative publication. When and how has it sort of tipped over into sharing more extreme voices? Yeah, so Spectator Australia um, is obviously our country spin-off of the Spectator, which is a, a, quite a big deal over in the UK. In Australia, I would say a little bit less so, um, but still it's a publication that has featured um, conservative writers and and figures such as Tony Abbott, uh, Andrew Bolt, Alan Jones and and more. Um, And it's it's edited, the magazine of it is edited by um, Rowan Dean, who is a current host on Sky News. Um, They also have an an online-only section called Flat Wide, which is the name very funny, which publishes a lot of of lesser-known conservative um, writers writing about um, news and current affairs. 
And um, what I discovered was that um, there was a, a, a series, or at least three different riders who, over the years, and this kind of goes back, I think, if I recall correctly, as far as 2017, um, have with very full lives from the pseudonyms generally, uh, online espousing, uh, you know, very racist, anti-Semitic, Islamophobic, anti-vaccine, you know, you, you pick the anti it's there. Um, rhetoric online under under some like often uh, pseudonyms, although sometimes the name um, of their online account and that was actually published on the um, on the Spectator was the same, but it was maybe not their real legal name. And so what I kind of discovered was that um, you know there's a bit of a track record of people with very extreme views using the Spectator, which is a, a mainstream publication. Uh, to to publish their views in a kind of sanitized way, but often with um, you know dog whistles or references that uh, um, you know make it clear that they do have these more extreme views, but perhaps in a, in a way that's more palatable for people to to ingest. This uh, this flat white is is it um, sort of is it still considered editorially managed by you know the Spectator editorial team, or can anyone? write anything for it? How does it operate? So my understanding is that it is still like your piece of commission. It's not like something like um, like Medium or or I think Mm. also Fortune has something similar where anyone gets published. No, you know, someone had to write it. And in some cases, you know, at least one of them, uh, it was clear, like, it it was clear that um, the writing had actually been republished from a more uh, like kind of very very niche far right, mm. um, uh, what was called pseudo news by one scholar who studied it um, outlet, and so this was uh, taken verbatim put into the Spectator, and the Spectator even said this is reposted from this place. So um, you know very clearly this is uh, although I think in, in like you know I can't presume to know exactly what goes on in, in the heads of, of whoever's commissioning this stuff. Um, very clearly there was at least some knowledge of, of these people's links to more extreme stuff. But in other situations, I mean, anyone that's based on it, you might say that they just, you know, um, were able to um, uh, commission it and not let them know the more extreme links. I don't know for sure, but, um, yeah, there is at least some evidence of, you know, the editors and spectator being aware of this stuff. And I don't know if that's this. This is the example um, of Luke Hollowood who published a piece uh, under the pseudonym in the Spectator of Lucas Rosas, I think that was the yeah, one that was. One. So one. I'm just interested to know, like, how do the pseudonyms work in, um, you know, that 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 he could publish under a false name, in a a um, in a sort of you know a publication like the Spectator without sort of saying that it was a pseudonym, or was it was it clear that it was a pseudonym, or uh, it's a good question. I don't know, and I should make clear that you know I put all these claims to the people who are identified and to the publications as well. I gave them an opportunity to comment. Um, I don't think uh, one one of them didn't just acknowledge the email, but didn't uh, give me anything that I could use. Mm. Um, but the rest kind of ignored it, including the Spectator. So I had a look today, in fact, and the Spectator has left all of the articles that I um, that I that I found linked to this um, far right. Um, people and have left them online, so uh, I can't say whether they've, you know, looked at my uh, you know, article and then just put it in the too high basket or didn't see it, but I uh, made multiple attempts to kind of reach them. Um, but in terms of your specific question, do they know that this is a pseudonym? 
I, I don't know. Um, as someone who has been published in a few places and has freelanced a few places, I don't think I've ever had someone uh, ask to you know view government documents to confirm my real name. So I can imagine yeah, it would be pretty enough. easy to, to publish under a pseudonym, particularly with a place like the Spectator, which probably um, isn't the biggest operation. <laughs> um, using uh, um, this Luke Hollowood as an example from your piece, because you, you do, um, I've got to say, I'm really impressed with how doggedly you follow people's tracks in these stories. And the next one, the other story when we get to is, is such a um, beautiful example of that. But um, when you do follow um, the tracks of Luke Hollowood, it's just it's not just a matter of someone just, you know, saying some bolshy stuff on Twitter. Like, he's incredibly involved um, in the the far right community and the same community that we've seen out and you know we saw out in the streets when Posey Parker was in town and you yeah. know the same community who were do, who were um, um, you know who who were were uh, charged with um, defacing um, suburbs with swastikas in Melbourne like mm-hmm. these are pretty bad people. Can you explain what you or, or talk to what you found out about him as one example of a journalist who's been published? Oh, sorry, not a journalist, but as is be, ha, had a piece published yeah. on the Spectator. Yeah, sure. Um, so I was um, in the article linked um, him, uh, Luke Hallwood, uh to a account in a social media, an alternative social media website, one of them where he was directly interacting with um, very far-right people, including neo-Nazis, and in one case at least, um, had actively encouraged um, people who were publicly known as neo-Nazis and definitely within these groups uh, to go and try and infiltrate um, a left-wing community organising groups as a way of um, disrupting them. So... Um, yeah, like I said, you know, this is not just someone who uh, mm-hmm. is writing as a spectator, kicks up their legs at 5.01 and then, uh, you know, fires off a few distasteful tweets. These mm-hmm. people, so I believe, like all of them um, are very involved. And in the case of, of, of Luke, was actually financially involved. You know, he'd spoken about um, financially contributing to Proud Boys, um, which is the kind of, uh, I think they sort of call the neo-fascist all-male group uh, that started in the US and now has a, a presence in Australia, although um, they're not quite as radical as the ones in the US, but, you know, they'd love to be. Um, uh, yeah, so he, you know, tried to give him advice and, and was um, saying, you know, I, I gave money to them as well. So, um, yeah, more, more than just a... a Keyboard warrior, I guess you'd say. Mm. And uh, there's a really weird twist where he's got some odd, uh, an, a link to SBS. Yeah. <laughs> Can you tell us about that? Yeah, sure. So um, uh, Luke's partner uh, works as uh, a producer at the SBS. Um, I contacted them. Mm. I never heard anything back. Um, mm. So, you know, and, and, and I, I put to them some of the stuff that I heard. Um, no response. Uh, no. Sorry, I, I, I can't say anything. But um, the reason that I included this was because, at, at least one case, um, Luke spoke to other far right people um, and in, intimated that he had inside knowledge of SBS internal communications. I believe it was talking about a death in custody, and he was telling, uh, "Oh, at SBS, all the journalists have been told to, you know, divert resources and cover this." Um, and as you can probably imagine. In these groups, uh, you know, giving uh, attention to the plight of 
of First Nations people and deaths in custody is not uh, is frowned upon. It's not something they like. So mm. um, that was to him not not a good thing. Um, but again, you know, I, I should just be clear. I I, I don't know if he uh, was told. I don't know if mm. um, his partner is is aware of his online um, uh, activities. I don't even know if you know he was potentially he was just making it up. Um, mm. So we can't know for sure. I don't want to imply otherwise. But the point of including that was to say that you know this person uh, clearly is, is claiming to have inside knowledge of a public broadcaster, which is significant in itself. Amazing that that you got no response. Um... The second piece uh, in the series looks at a writer um, who has been published in Daily Mail, uh, who you tracked to a right-wing Twitter account. And this is some real God's honest truth, great investigative reporting. I loved reading it. I love seeing things like that where you're like, (laughs) at this time he um, made a TripAdvisor post and um, and this this Burner account also posted about the same hotel. I'm like, yes, get him, get him, Cam. Can you talk talk to us about that investigation? Yeah, sure. So um, the piece covers a a, um, Daily Mail uh, writer called Sam Duncan who... Um, uh, the piece links to this uh, influential white nationalist Twitter account called Patrick Based Moon, which is a reference to um, uh, Patrick Bateman from American Psycho, the sociopath and based, which is kind of an online thing. Mm. Um, and what, I mean, look, there's a whole a lot of information which didn't go into the article, like a lot of this stuff is painstaking mm. to try and cross-reference, you know, different aspects of people's online uh, persona, even as they attempt to say, you know, uh, to stay anonymous or probably stay under a pen name. Um, but I was able to use, or, or the piece shows that, um, you know, use information such as uh, comparing his uh, Google reviews to the, the tweets of the account to cross, you know, um, to, to figure out where he was staying when he was travelling through Europe. I was able to, you know, use his... IMDb reviews to show that he was, uh, you know, at, at the same time watching and, and, and feeling the same way about movies as this um, influential racist account was. Um, you know, there's a, a whole lot of information there. Um, he claimed, uh, Sam Duncan did speak to me initially, and he said, um, this is not my account, I disavow everything it says. I actually handed over this account uh, in, in October, I think it was 2020, and I handed over to a US friend. Um, that, and he said, I will get that friend to get in contact with you. Um, probably, predictably, I never heard from this friend. Wow. I asked him for any evidence of, hey, you know, did you have any proof of you handing this over? Um, again, I didn't get anything from him. So um, that was his claim. Uh, but all this information that showed that even if you, um, if you like, you, even if you uh, like, took him at his word, there were similarities between what um, this account was doing and what he was doing that were t- too like um, too strong to to chalk up to just chance. And mm. um, it was he was clearly, still clearly operating this account. If you take a little step back and and look at both of these kind of pieces and what you've learnt from them, um, what does this tell you about sort of where the kind of conservative media landscape is heading? In, in this country, or is it a bit too um, too small to extrapolate? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I mean, I'm not sure you just talk this and, and say, great, uh, have, you know, massive um, revelations about the industry. But mm. I did speak to an expert um, who studies the far right in Australia, and he says that 
Um, he says that the, um, the the project of the far right over the past this century, over the past 23 years, has been to um, mainstream their ideas, typically through the media. And mm. so, you know, these examples where there's a people with very, very extreme views who were, you know, tweeting pictures of uh, Muslims praying in parks and joking about seeing their dog on them or, um, you know, saying awful things about, you know, um, praising Hitler. Like, those people were also, you know, clearly saw... Not only do they, um, you know, want to get published in mainstream publications, but they also, uh, you know, the, the published work was, um, was was sanded down. It taken the, the more rough edges off, but it still has similarities, you know. Mm. Like it still spoke about, for example, the, the dangers of, of, of um, you know, what they would say are the dangers of multiculturalism. multiculturalism. Um, so, like, um, I think what we can take from this is that, um, you know, obviously the way that, um, points are communicated in the media. Um, you could definitely try and present them in more palatable ways, but ultimately, um, you know, like just remember, like even if it's you know given with a spoonful of sugar, these points, uh, these these arguments are still the same arguments that outright, um, you know, far right fascist people are making. They're just trying to do a better job of hiding it, and we should always be um, vigilant about that. And normalising really radical points of view. And, exactly. Um, there, I mean, it, it sort of comes at the same time as the um, the essay in the monthly from Sarah Krasnostein, yeah. The Train yeah. Family Murders, um, on, and where she talks about the age of radicalisation and um, sort of makes a point in that article about how quickly it can happen as well yeah. once those um, ideas are sort of fed to you um, um, sort of a lot intense intensively in a short period of time and with things like I guess the right the direction Twitter is going I mean I am you know I've you see um, I've seen a genuine change over the last you know few months uh, in terms of what people are willing to say on main you know yeah 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 and and um uh I mean I can actually use this point to um give a little uh, forward sizzle I actually have a, um, a follow-up article coming out tomorrow. Um, yes. I was going to ask that. to say what uh, I was going to ask. What's next? <laughs> uh, that is that is weeks this. Um, so that'll be on quite a bit of But what what it will hopefully show is that um, you know uh, people can still you know be quite um, you know they can they can express these views, maybe not to the same extent, but still to quite shocking extent in everyday life. Mm. People who continue to work in the media, um, and you know that, uh, like, unless it's draw attention to, um, you know, uh, may just help be allowed to persist, and even sometimes when it's draw attention to. So, um, I think it's just, you know, it's it's a delicate thing to happen. I'm sure everyone out there has encountered a family friend or a family member or an acquaintance or something who has maybe espoused things that can be quite radical. You know, ideas that are immigration and race or sexuality uh, is a very, very difficult thing to kind of... Um, gender. Uh, gender, yeah, yeah, gender, of course. Um, it's going it's to be very difficult to kind of uh, address, um, but ultimately, like, you know, these views are out there, and unless you kind of make an effort to um, contest them, uh, to, to call them out and to recognise them for what they are, even if they are, like, in this article, presented in ways that may be more normalised and, and, and palatable... Um, unless you challenge them, they'll um, spread further.
And I think, you know, sometimes, I mean, you look at um, the Tucker Carlson um, tweets, oh, sorry, text messages that became public mm-hmm. this week, which were just yeah. uh, eye-watering. Um, and you just think it's all, you know, it might all feel like a bit of a game when you're in, you know, uh, in positions, some some people in positions in the media who um, who have a uh, have a role that outrage equals um, profit ability, <laughs> um, yeah. and, but when you're pat- platforming um, this this sort of extremism and emboldening the mainstream. I don't even know if that's a word of these views. Yeah. Yes, the mainstreaming <laughs> yeah. of the, of those views. It can be really dangerous. Totally. I mean, yeah, they um, we, we definitely have seen that. And you know, Tucker Carlson is you know he's, he's the Michael Jordan of of, extre- of uh, mainstreaming extreme yeah. ideas. He was really really good. Um, but you know, like that, like when when you say Tucker Carlson or you say some of the other figures uh, you might accuse of doing the same thing, very often. Uh, what will come to mind is other people who are kind of calling that out. So, look, you know, the, the, we, you know, most people, um, we, know, we value free speech. We like to think there are limits on it. Um, but, you know, one of the things that we can do at the very least is contested stuff. And so, you know, you might even see that, for example, with, um, to make a comparison, the um, drag, drag show that mm. have been cancelled across Melbourne. I know. Um, the times that they haven't been... Uh, there's been a, um, I think almost every time there's been a, a very large presence and, and a usually larger presence of counter-protesters, mm. you know, showing their support for uh, the event, for the LGBTQIA community, and that is in itself an, a, um, you know, that's a way that people can counteract this kind of stuff. So it does, you know, run the gamut from, from uh, um, you know, secret extremists writing in publications to neo-Nazis trying to pick an event, but, um, you know, we're, we're not powerless in this, and there are people who, who realise it. Uh, but, but often, you know, I should just point out, and this is, why, this is why I do what I do, there's a lot of people out there who, you know, may not be as knowledgeable about this stuff, may not be as clearly, may not, you know, read Twitter or do these other things that mean that you're kind of aware of these things. Mm. Uh, and, and they're not, they're not um, you know, for this or for against this, they actually don't really know about it. So, and accept yeah. news sources on face value, you know. Exactly. So, you know, doing what you can to, you know, help um, you know, speak to people about stuff and, and help them, you know, know what, you know, certain ideas might actually mean, uh, even when they present nicely, uh, it's is, it is still a very powerful thing to do. Thanks so much for joining us on Spin Cycle tonight, uh, Cam. And everyone, get on to crikey.com.au to check out Cam's next instalment in uh, extremist ideology in Australian media. Thanks again, Cam. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Triple R on FM, digital, online, on demand, podcasts and via the app. Amy Ramikis is a Guardian, is Guardian Australia's political reporter and a dead set legend. There's uh, no such thing as ABC impartiality around these traps. She's done her time in Fairfax Media, covered fe- federal politics, Queensland politics, crime and court. She was an inaugural nominee of the Young Walkley Awards and is a regular on Insiders and all those ABC news TV shows. 
On last Sunday's Insiders, Amy managed to steer the conversation away from war games for a microsecond to make a brilliant and succinct case for raising the rate of job seeker. Amy joins us now to talk about how this topic that should really be Labor heartland stuff has proved so difficult for the Albanese government to wrangle in its messaging in the lead up to their first major budget. Welcome to Triple R, Amy. Oh, thank you. And you're a dead set legend as well. So, Mutual Appreciation Society. Amazing. I love it. Um, To quote you on Insiders on the weekend, when do we start to get governments with political courage to do what is needed when it's needed rather than worrying what the political landscape looks like? A bloody men. Um, mm-hmm. For listeners who might live blissfully, uh, blissful lives away from the political discourse, in which case I do not know why they're listening to this show, uh, what is the current level of job seeker and why is there so much pressure to raise the rate? So the current level of job seeker is about $49 a day, which is absolutely ridiculous. It is well below the poverty line, the Henderson poverty line, mm. which is in the process of being updated, but last I checked was about $88 a day. Oh, and that wow. is a bare minimum. So if you're on JobSeeker, you are, you're getting about $15,000 a year. You add on some allowances and things on top of that, maybe 18000 It's worse if you're on youth allowance because youth allowance isn't indexed to CPI like some of the other low payments are. Uh, and so they haven't seen even like the modest increase that has come with the inflation indexation. So we're talking about consigning hundreds of thousands of people to poverty for no other reason than a political choice. And um, there was sort of a moment when it looked like the government might do something. I mean, you know, you could sort of um, have... You would have gone into them winning with some confidence given in opposition they were incredibly vocal about the um, the fact that the rates should be raised and they also appointed um, the economic an economic inclusion advisory committee to review the rate. Um, and it's, so all of that seemed promising and the recommendations of the advisory committee did in fact uh, reinforce, um, you know, very heartily the fact that the rate needs need to be raised. What sort of recommendations did they make? Well, they made recommendations that uh, the rate does, the base rate needs to be raised for all working age payments because they are now a barrier to finding work. Mm. And what they mean by that is that you can't afford public transport, you can't afford a haircut, you can't focus on a job search if you're worried about how you're going to feed your kids or your Mm. parents or yourself or buy your medication. So they made their recommendation that it needed to be raised uh, quite substantially. They put a figure of about 90% of the aged pension, which would bump it up by a couple of hundred dollars. So we're not even talking like, you know, huge differences Uh, but it would make a big difference in people's lives. And they also recommended, you know, a bunch of reviews that they increase rental assistance and that sort of thing as well. And they didn't mince words in this report, but... The thing is, when Labor came to government, they never actually promised to raise the rate. They said we would look at it. Mm. Expectations were super high because in opposition, one of your jobs is to point out everything that the government isn't doing 
And what the government wasn't doing was, you know, doing anything on social security. And so Labor was like, you know, this is ridiculous. We need to do more, blah, 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 blah. They get to government and they're like, oh, wow, so the budget's not in a great Mm. position. Um, And so we don't actually have, you know, a lot of wriggle room. So we'll have a look at what we can do when we can do it. The problem with that, though, is that this is the best budget we're going to get for a couple of years. It's This is it. Mm. There is a possibility that we might even get a tiny little surplus in this budget, but every other budget is going to be hit by inflation, growing costs and other responsibilities. And so advocates are just saying, if you don't do it now, when will you do it? And there's no answer for that. And there's also, you know, the theory of when you've just when you've just won government, go hard early, and by the time the next election swings around, people will have forgotten anyway. I mean, our memories are very very short these days. But also, yeah. there's a general support to raise the rate. I mean, this is what I find astounding. What they've done instead is um, they've said they're not necessarily going to ta- they're not going to take on those recommendations. But then they're sort of dipping their toe in weird ways. There's like, you know, talk of raising um, this uh, the age of um, the younger uh, for the single parents payment when the age the youngest child has to be um, before you get kicked off the payment so I think it was it is eight and there's talk of raising it to 12 and then a couple of days ago there's talk of raising the job seeker allowance for people over 55 what do these strange sort of segmenting um, approaches do What, what is the rationale behind this and what do you make of it Well, what they do is create the poor and the deserving poor, Mm. which is pretty abhorrent politics when you think about it because everyone deserves a chance. Everyone deserves to have a social safety net that is going to look after them when they need it. And we've got two ministers, or the Prime Minister and the Finance Minister, who have both relied on Australia's social safety net in the past. Anthony Albanese and Katie Gallagher were both given a chance and they're great examples of what happens when the system works. The problem is now is that the government is cherry-picking what groups it is feeling is deserving of help or who it can help. And that just creates division within the community uh, because, you know, people who are on these payments are fairly united that everyone deserves a break and everyone deserves to live on something that can get you the absolute bare minimum. We're not talking even anything approaching minimum wage, which is about 48, 49,000. We're not talking that. Mm. We're just talking a bare minimum that maybe there's a couple of rooms that you can find to rent or a single bed flat somewhere that you can catch the bus and that you can eat like two meals instead of one, like that maybe you can get a new pair of shoes. Like this is what we're talking about. Well, also, yeah. the, the, there's some pretty horrendous um, outcomes associated with um, people who have to live on, you know, um, welfare that is well below the po- poverty rate. There's, I think, you know, um, I think the statistic I heard was they're twice as likely um, to um, be suicidal. Um, obviously, mm-hmm. there's huge mental health issues. And um, like you said before, in terms of having to forego medication and, and that sort of thing, there's massive health repercussions. Yeah, huge, because when you're living under so much stress and pressure about how you're going to continue to live, everything just becomes harder than it needs to. And we know during the pandemic how easy 
it is to change people's lives. So mm. during the beginning of the pandemic, they had the COVID subsidy, which effectively doubled the rate of the working age payments, and it lifted like about a million people out of poverty and their kids as well, because that often gets missed in the debate as well. Is that there's children living in poverty in Australia because their parents or their family are living in poverty. They were all lifted out when they doubled it, and that just meant people could put meals on the table. They had some space to think about how they could find work because, again, it's another myth that people who are on these payments do not want to work. That is not true. They do. There are just other pressures, be it chronic health, disability, mental health, skills, care responsibilities. We don't make it easy in Australia if you don't have the luck trifecta of a supportive family and also health and also living in a place where you can easily find work and transport. We don't we don't make it very easy. And so what the government is doing by cherry-picking what groups it's, it's go, it wants to help is it's saying that you are more deserving than this group over here. I don't think the Australian public thinks that way. Um, I think that it's pretty bad politics. And I think if the government doesn't do something across the board, they are going to hear about it very loudly. Well, there's already um, ministers who are breaking ranks and talking publicly about it. There's actually... Um a really good episode of Full Story this week to uh, to um, <laughs> big up one of your <laughs> um, one of the Guardian's um, podcasts. But Laura Murphy Oates uh, spoke to Southwest Sydney MP Michael Freelander, who was really quite compassionate and honest about why he felt the need to speak publicly um, about why the government really needs to raise the rate. You know, he he sort of said that people who are on these payments need to know that um, there is support in the government ranks for them. Um, Is there anyone in the federal government who doesn't want to raise the rate? I mean, what is the talk? You know, what are you hearing around the traps? Is there general frustration with this? You know, is it sort of going to be a revolt against Jim Chalmers? What's the sense? (laughs) Um, No, there isn't anyone who doesn't want to. I haven't heard anyone say, oh, you know, we shouldn't do this. There is a cohort, I suppose, who are saying, well, the budget is not in a great position and we can't do it all at once, so we need to be fiscally responsible. So when you hear people saying we can't do it, that's what they're thinking about. They're thinking about, oh, what, what political attacks are we going to get if we raise the rate because it's going to cost, you know, X about a billion over the next four years if we do that. But then there's another group of people who were saying that this has gone on for too too long. So it was almost 20 years before we saw any real increase to the rate in Australia. The Morrison government actually raised it to 49 from $40 a day. They actually mm. bumped it up a tiny bit, which is more generous than what is speculated that this government is going to do. Mm. So But that's still, it's still nothing. It's still nothing enough to live on. But also these MPs who are speaking up, uh, Dr Freelander being one of the exceptions, but the majority of the 15 or so who have been very vocal about this, writing to the Prime Minister, lobbying Jim Chalmers publicly and privately, they're mostly new MPs. They mostly uh, haven't come up in the usual way that you come up through politics, which is university politics and then law school or a staffer and, you know, getting your career politicians. Yeah, Yeah. exactly. They've come up different ways. They've had different 
experiences. There's a lot more women. There's a lot more migrant women, uh, and just people who have just said, "Well, like I, I know people who are living in this situation, and we have to do something about it." Mary Doyle, the new uh, MP mm. for Aston, she's not even sworn into the parliament yet, and she's joined this list of people calling for the rate to be raised because she's saying, "Well, people are suffering, and we are the Labor Party, and we're supposed to do something about it." Mm. The trick, though, is that it always comes down to what are the political attacks going to be because, as I've previously said, we don't tend to have governments that show political courage in Australia anymore. Everyone's so worried about what could be said rather than doing what is right. And they are worried that if they raise the rate, they will be seen as fiscally unresponsible, that they will play into all of the old, like myths about how Labor is bad at managing money and that it'll give the opposition enough of a free kick to, you know, endure for the next couple of years, particularly since we are in an inflationary environment. But the fact is they earn so little that raising the rate isn't going to be inflationary. It just seems so ridiculous when you've got a opposition that's not even on its knees, it's like flat on its face, and you've got, you know, there's a counter-argument for every single one of those points. You've got a Prime Minister who you know, humanised his own or, you know, rounded out his story with the um, with his backstory, with his origin story, I, sent, I guess, of his mum on a disability pension, you know, bringing him up in um, public housing. And, and yet they've got this political paralysis. Like, what does it, you know, what's the sense, you know, from you and from your colleagues, um, you know, political reporters who you know, who who are sort of seen, watched this government go through its first year. What What is your sense of where, how big of an impact is this going to take on their credibility and their ability to move forward with, for the rest of the term? Well, I mean, it's like, I guess the Canberra conversation is different to the conversation yeah. that's happening outside of Canberra. And I think the conversation that's happening outside of Canberra is that Voters, particularly younger voters, so like you know millennials and and Gen Z, they're not going to forget mm. if nothing is changed here. If Labor doesn't live up to these expectations, I don't think that they get too many more chances to do that. And so David Pocock, uh, the independent ACT senator, he's quite frustrated. He's the one who's, who basically negotiated with the government to get the economic uh, advisory panel to you know to so that the government basically had some recommendations to follow. And he said on RN on the ABC this morning that maybe what needs to happen is more Greens and more independents. So there's a minority government, which is actually how you can get things done. And that was in relation to housing. But I think it's probably what a lot of people are feeling out in the different electorates about how you can actually force change, because I don't think people voted for liberal rights. I think people voted for change and while there has been some changes I don't think there's been enough of a signal that this is something that is going to necessarily change the shape of Australia or change the trajectory Australia is on so I mean time will tell as it always does (laughs) the budget's being handed down 
on Tuesday. There will probably be some fiddling with rental assistance. There will probably be some fiddling to, you know, age thresholds of who fits in where. They're getting rid of some of the more onerous programs for single parents like Parents Next and things like that. But unless there is some sort of massive overhaul or help, this is something we're going to continue to scream about for the next couple of years. And obviously it's not going to go away, go away too because there's also the conversation about the um, the, the tax breaks. Um, that's, you know... <laughs> Yay, stage three! <laughs> I love those tax cuts. Yeah, I gotta love those tax cuts. Well, but, like, I mean, like, that's, that's what makes all of this so much worse. Like it compounds it because you look at the massive defence spending that we've got coming over the next decade, you look at the fact that the stage three tax cuts are looking at at least $250 billion going in, in revenue, so foregone revenue uh, is going to these tax cuts. You look at that and you just think, well, why is it okay to spend money over here or lose money over here, but it's not actually okay to raise people out of poverty? And so because you have such a stark comparison, that's another issue for the government to try and overcome because I'm not sure if they can explain it to people. Especially since everyone—it's it, well, not their idea. I mean, people understand no. if you if you kill something that was, yeah. you know, that was the um, brainchild of a weird conservative government that came before you. <laughs> Especially since, like, it was it was done in stages. So. Stage three was passed under Malcolm Turnbull. And then when Scott Morrison became prime minister, he went back and he went, actually, I'm also going to do this, which is get rid of that 37% Mm. tax bracket, which is what has made stage three even more inequitable Mm. because you've got a flat tax rate now. So the fact that they're not willing to fiddle and they're not willing to fiddle because they went to the election saying we're not going to put in new taxes and we're not going to make any changes and now they're saying, well, we committed to that. Mm. And that again just makes points you look, to one of... Oh, it's, it's just one of the biggest issues with Australian politics mm. is that we get so caught up in these stupid debates about what is and isn't an election promise uh, and I we know. should be grown up enough to say, you know what, things are different, we're going to change things. Exactly. And it just sort of shuts down any conversation too. It just sort of makes you seem kind of robotic and completely without sort of nuance or, or a kind of you know, an ability to read the room, that's for sure. That's what it feels like now. It's interesting. What, what You mentioned before there's, you know, the um, conversations inside the Canberra, inside Canberra and outside Canberra. What, what, are, the, what are sort of the in, inside Canberra sort of conversations amongst um, political journos about how, how um, the government is faring in its first 12 months? Well, it's mostly it's mostly mixed. Most would probably say that they've had a pretty good first 12 months uh, and most would probably also err on the side of fiscal responsibility mm. and that, you know, the budget looks like this, so we can't do that. Um, and that that's just, you know, uh, that's what happens with political journalism is that you tend to look at numbers and spreadsheets and things like that mm. rather than real-world experiences at time. But, I mean, like, look, the government certainly hasn't had 
the first 12 months that Scott Morrison had. It hasn't gotten, it hasn't had that level of controversy or anger or all of those flashpoints that we saw towards the end of that 10 years of coalition government. But I do think that we have approached the point where the honeymoon is over for Labor. Mm. And unless there are some sort of answers in the budget, not just on uh, on welfare, which is a very important one, but also on the NDIS, also on health, uh, those sorts of things. I think you're going to see more and more. What are you actually doing? Because small target strategy strategies do not work in government, particularly when your opposition is pretty useless because there's a vacuum there and that vacuum gets filled by something and it means that political journalists all go off and have a hunt and just go, actually, what are you doing over here and mm. what are you doing over there and what, what's happening here? And before you know it, there's a whole bunch of fires that the government has to try and put out. And it, it must be a, a challenging time to be a uh, very compassionate journalist, but thank God we've got you, Amy. <laughs> Please do I don't it. even know if I am compassionate I'm just human You are, you are And at least your humanity shines through Thank you so much for joining us um, this evening And uh, hopefully we shall chat to you again Anytime and thank you for having me Triple R before I go, I do want to give a big shout-out to Shane and Leanne from the Last Chance Bar, their campaign, Last Chance to Save the Tote, which uh, aimed to raise $3 million to buy the Tote Hotel and put it in trust to secure it as a permanent music venue. Seems like a whole lot of madness a month ago. <laughs> but their relentless campaigning has seen them raise uh, over $2.7 million and it's been hectic and impressive. Their live streams have been amazing. I was um, grateful to be able to sort of get a sneak peek at one uh, on the weekend when my partner played at one in, with his band. Uh, honestly, um, just hats off to them. Uh, a couple of people who were so passionate and dedicated. Um, they made it to the project this week. Um, there's less than 48 hours left to become part of uh, this historic campaign. I do believe it's one of the highest or if not the highest um, uh, campaign total that has ever been raised on Possible. Um, so get on it. It's on uh, uh, Possible and um, it's called Last Chance to Save the Tote. Well done, Shane and Leanne. And that's all for this week. Thanks for listening. You can find us every week on your favourite podcast platform. And you can follow us on Twitter at Sample, at Lily Juice, and at The Shuffle Diary. You can also listen in at rrr.org.au via On Demand for the radio version of the show. Want to support Spin Cycle? Become a Triple R subscriber. Your subscription helps keep the station running and helps Triple R produce and create great radio and podcast content like this. <laughs>